Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Political Thinker podcast. My name is Christopher Bremner MacDonald. It has been a really long time since we've recorded a new edition of the Political Thinker podcast. This has been because I've actually been doing my honours degree in political science, and uh, I just have not had the time to produce or record any new podcasts. I will endeavour in 2020 to produce a regular podcast which people can listen to on political science issues. Now, this particular edition this week is a special edition for the fires on Kangaroo Island. This episode will include a number of different things, including a telephone interview with the Kangaroo Island Island newspaper journalist Stan Gorton. Hello. G'day, Stan. It's Christopher here calling from the Political Thinker podcast. How are you going? Hey, Christopher. Not too bad. It will also include some recordings of while I was actually on the ground in Kangaroo Island in the fire-affected areas. While I was there, I had an opportunity to talk to a number of volunteer firefighters, professional firefighters, emergency service workers, nurses, doctors... Uh, as well as military personnel such as army officers and tried to build an understanding of really how they felt on the ground at the time and how they deal with their day-to-day management of this environmental catastrophe. So we'll start the episode off with a recording of my preparation to go to Kangaroo Island. Enjoy. I must apologise in advance for some of the clarity of the recordings. Uh, Some of them were made in extreme weather, and so the wind is very, very strong. January 19, 2020. Getting ready, packing to go to Kangaroo Island for a few days. Now, I haven't been there before. Uh, My parents actually live on Kangaroo Island, and I'm going over there to help with some fire relief and fireproofing, all that sort of stuff. While I'm there, I'm going to produce a podcast for the Political Thinker podcast, all about what's happening on Kangaroo Island. I'm going to tour around, have a look at some of the fire areas and what's happened to it and basically give an understanding of what's been happening and the environmental impact that Kangaroo Island has had to go through with this massive, massive, terrible event of climate change and firestorms that are completely unprecedented and have just caused such incredible loss. The 20th of January 2020, on the ferry now over to Kangaroo Island. Most of the people on board seem to be army and... It's pretty awesome. And uh, the weather here is absolutely ridiculous, extremely windy. and been pouring with all, absolutely with everything the weather's got since Adelaide. Quite remarkable. It's good to have some rain. Unfortunately, this next recording is nearly impossible to hear because it is so windy. After arriving on the ferry with the really, really rough weather, watching all those people being ill, sorry for the quality of the recording there, 
we took a tour throughout the fire-affected areas of Kangaroo Island. One of the most important things to note about this particular expedition was the fact that areas which were once essentially native bush, thick scrub, full of wildlife, millions and millions, probably billions of animals, kangaroos, koalas, birds and other other forms of native animals are just gone. And it's quite extraordinary. It, the, the landscape itself just looks so desolate. There's just masses and masses of ash everywhere, thick, thick ash. And it, it's quite hard to actually describe. The, the best way of really describing it would be a Siberian winter. It looks like a Siberian winter. We kept driving for some time. We drove past many, many fire trucks and fire vehicles. We came to a point where there was water trucks filling up. Uh, so the massive, massive water tankers filling up all the fire engines. And I had an opportunity to talk to, number one, some regular fire people, but also then the, the officers in charge. And I asked them basically how they felt about the fires on Kangaroo Island and what they felt like being there. Uh, they all seemed pretty happy about it. They were pretty happy about, actually, that they had done a really good job in containing the fires to that extent. I asked them how tired they were, and the commanders said that they were absolutely exhausted. However, today had been a really good day because basically there hadn't been any out-of-control fires. They were very tired. That's one of the things with the firefighters is they just work huge shifts and they become completely exhausted. They see terrible things and there's they just keep on going and going and going. And uh, we saw that in New South Wales with, with fire people just having breakdowns because they'd been going for so long. Eventually we came to a point in the road where the two men died on Kangaroo Island. And I have a recording from the site, which I'll play you now, and then I'll discuss it a bit longer afterwards. I'm standing in a place right now which is quite emotional, which is the place where the two people who passed away died in the fires, that is, in Kangaroo Island, uh, where they passed away. Uh, that's Clayton and Richard Lang. All that remains is the stench of death and melted pieces of iron from their car and two, two iron crosses with their names and a solitary high-vis vest tied to a tree. It's, it's very sad, very sad indeed. It's important to note at this point that when I say that all remains of their vehicle was a pool of melted steel, it's literally a pool of melted steel. The fire was so hot and it really shows, it really shows the devastation of fire and how quickly it, it attacks everything. Now, looking at the road towards where their car stopped, you can see they lost control of their vehicle. There's skid marks across the burnt road and 
when you actually go to the place where they were found, it is, it's, it's very emotional. It really is very emotional. There's just nothing around other than burnt, few burnt trees left. However, there was one thing which is quite amazing, which is that some of the native plants are already coming back. And that's truly amazing. There is some green in the devastation. However, the new life doesn't take away the fact that two people died at that place. We then continued to Flinders Chase. Standing by the side of the road near Flinders Chase at the moment, and all I can really say is it looks like a Siberian winter in the way that there's just these stalks for as far as you can see. Just as far as the horizon goes, there's nothing other than dead trees. And this constant, constant smell of decaying flesh. It's horrible. But at the same time, it sort of has this bizarre beauty about it. And everywhere you look, you see bits of green popping up and new shoots and regeneration. And that's quite remarkable. But there's just death everywhere. And the other thing that's very strange, there are no birds, there's no animals, there's nothing. It's other than the car, there's absolute complete silence and that's really, really eerie. The silence was really, really strange. Living in the city essentially, there's always noise, there's always something. Even living in the country, there's always birds, there's always a cow mooing or a sheep bleating or something, but there was nothing, nothing at all. No birds. And for me, that's really strange. There's always birds. Where I've grown up, my, my whole life, I've always had birds around somewhere. There's always birds, but there were none at all. And that is really, really strange. It was like a nuclear bomb had gone off and just destroyed everything, absolutely everything. And the smell of decaying flesh was just absolutely revolting. It was lingering everywhere. And the fact is you couldn't really see too many dead animals. And I asked one of the army officers who was there, why can't you actually see lots of dead animals? And he said, well, that's because they're buried in the ash, essentially. So the ash around Kangaroo Island is roughly 50 centimetres deep. And uh, people are required not to walk on it because one of the issues that they have is that the fire continues under the ground. So although the tree on the top may have burnt, its root system is still burning. And if you don't understand mallee scrub too much, mallees essentially you have the branches on top of the ground but you have the trunk underneath. And sometimes, according to one of the firemen I spoke with, these can burn for up to three weeks at a time, which means that if you're walking along it, you can fall down into the, the uh, coals, essentially, and get severely burned. And while I was, while I was there, I was talking with a, with a firefighter who said that one of his men had fallen uh, into a, a cavity, essentially, and landed on some coals, and his fireproof uniform didn't burn. However, he got quite badly burned through it. It just transferred the heat which in itself is quite a worry. I'm standing by the side of the road at the moment and the only sign of life really is ants. 
lots and lots and lots of ants but uh, by the ants is a wallaby a very 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 burnt wallaby um, who obviously couldn't escape the flames and it's a shocking reminder of what happens here so I'm standing in the middle of an area which is uh, scrub native scrub and then behind that is plantation gum trees and uh, between that's a road about it's about 20 meters but everything is burnt for kilometers and it's just just shocking one of the types of animals who've gone relatively unscathed in the kangaroo and bushfires seems to be echidnas now i was told that this is because number one they burrow but number two because their major food source is ants and as we heard in that last recording ants seem to have done pretty well their their colonies go very 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 deep and they seem to have escaped the the heat and only now coming up and it seems to be that there are ant nests everywhere i noticed that so much just ant nests everywhere and great big bull ants that um to be honest i got bitten by one and oh geez did it hurt but uh, i thought it was interesting to know that there are ants just everywhere whereas there's nothing else I spoke with a number of personnel on the island, including, as I've said before, firefighters, SES, uh, Metropolitan Fire Service, Army, etc., etc. Now, the Army personnel I spoke with, there were a few of them, but the collective understanding of what they were doing there really was to provide support. And uh, I asked what kind of support specifically. So, for example, one of them said they were building fences. Others said they were doing things like animal disposal. Now, uh, essentially, locals started animal disposal, so that's of livestock and things like that. However, there comes a point when it becomes a job which is just too much. And so that's where the army got involved. So they've been digging trenches and essentially disposing of of hundreds of thousands of, of animals. This is the point where I discovered that, that some of the animals are actually buried underneath the, the ash, and that's why you can smell them, the smell comes through the ground, uh, whereas you can't necessarily see them. Some of the firefighters that I spoke with said that they did a range of different things. This is speaking to lots of different people, from driving trucks to being uh, what they called a grunt, as in just doing what, what they needed to be done, uh, people who were using hoses, people who were uh, ferrying water, but all, all sorts of things like that. And it's it's interesting to see the toll that has taken on firefighters over a time. Now, one of the things, the one of the issues that kept arising was that they now work on a, uh, I believe it's a two-day-on, three-day-off program, which means... They have one day at home, one day travel, two days at fight, or fighting the fires, and then one day travel home, and then a day at home, and, and so on and so forth, round the clock. And a number of the firefighters I chatted to said that they don't like doing this. They'd much prefer to be uh, just have a day resting at a camp to sleep rather than going home all the time. And uh, it's an interesting, obviously it's a, it's a safety issue, making sure they get people home, but they said they're just wasting days and days of time. And I can understand that, but at the same time, I think the mental toll that, that will 
they'd be affecting people like firefighters as well as civilians on the ground as well. And it's something which the government will have to deal with the cost of this over the coming decades because all through Australia this year there are going to be people, large numbers of people, who are massively affected both physically and mentally from what they've seen. And this is the sort of thing, this is, this is getting to the level where it's sort of like wartime shell shock and it's, it's good to see that some organisations are actually already seeing this. So, for instance, one of the army people I spoke with said they've actually been ordered to hug people if necessary and uh, that's a really important thing to do because it provides, it provides a, essentially a, a primal safety net for some people and a bit of human contact is really, really important. One of the things that arose as well, talking to firefighters, was I asked them, do you think you should be paid like the Army Reserve? So the reservists who are actually on the ground, uh, they're paid for a month, full wages for a month, but the firefighters are not. They're not reimbursed at all. They're volunteers. And except, of course, for the uh, for certain people. So there are some rescue people, uh, fire and rescue. There are Metropolitan Fire Service. That's, that's different. I'm talking about volunteers. And essentially, the volunteers I spoke to actually said they don't want to get paid. And I said, why? Why don't you want to get paid? And they said, because if, if, the, uh, if the volunteer fire services around Australia acted like the army and became a, you know, uh, two weekends a month, two weeks a year or whatever it is, you know, that sort of thing, paid then you'd get lots of people who just would, were there for the money rather than being there for the passion of actually fighting fires. And I can understand that. However, I really feel that the Australian firefighters should be on a pay basis for what they're going through. They shouldn't be doing it for free, really. Uh, they should be paid while they're on the ground, while they're working, and be given the support they need for that. Not raising money through sausage sizzles and through bake sales and things like that to support their organisations, which is what they're actually doing at the moment. One of the places I got to visit while I was on the island was the Kangaroo Island Wildlife Park, and uh, it was really good to see that it survived. Uh, it's really interesting to see that uh, they, they put up a GoFundMe page um, asking for $15,000 and made over $2 million, which is absolutely lovely. Um, it's also really remarkable to see that uh, they've been working round the clock trying to revive and, and uh, take care of, of native animals that are affected by the fire. Uh, truly remarkable, truly remarkable. Definitely a place if you're a tourist and you're heading to Kangaroo Island, go and support them. I also went to visit the Kangaroo Island Beehive, the honey place in Kingscote. And they unfortunately lost a huge number of beehives in the fires. So it was 800 plus beehives. And this is obviously not a good thing at all. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible waste, especially because on Kangaroo Island there are species of bees that only exist there and they're essentially gone now. And it's little things like this. It's a quite a big thing, but it's it's the little things that make a huge difference to a community. The whole of the community of Kangaroo Island right now are suffering, whether they were affected directly or not. Everyone's suffering from it, and it's it's becoming exhausting for everybody. The air is thick with soot. 
everything is covered in dust and soot and you can't really get away from it. It's very, very sad. Towards the end of my trip, I heard this sound. When there have been massive fires in an area, obviously the sound of pouring rain is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful thing. Next up, we have an interview with Stan Gorton from the Islander newspaper on Kangaroo Island. He joined me by telephone after I got back to the mainland. My special guest today is Stan Gorton from the Islander. And uh, Stan, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, um, Stan, you're a journalist on Kangaroo Island. As I said, you write for the Islander. And... Um, as someone who lives on the island, how have you seen these terrible bushfires affect the community? Um, well, I've been reporting on them since the beginning, so it's been uh, over a month now. It's December 20th, the first one, mm-hmm. or the first couple, and then it's um, just rolled on from there. And um, yeah, so I've gone out to the fire grounds a few times, met with people, and um, I guess you just can't escape it. The, the impact's been pretty total, so it's affecting everyone. Not only whose properties have been burnt, but through the you know tourism and that that side of things as well. Of course. So, as a journalist working on the island, what insights do you have on how the efforts have been going uh, to combat hazards and hazardous fires in areas on the island? Well, the third, I mean, fire that broke out on the third. 3rd of January was mm-hmm. just unstoppable, so there yes. wasn't really any chance of stopping that under those conditions. But of course. there has been tremendous effort leading up to that and after that, in, um, both from the, the uh, volunteer and paid firefighters and also the farm firefighting units. So mm-hmm. of their farmers with water tanks on the back of their trucks or utes and they go out on the scene. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's been interesting to watch how um, everybody works together to try and control the fires. But when that firestorm hit on the 3rd, and to a lesser degree the other one uh, a week or two weeks later, mm-hmm. they're largely unstoppable. They just rush through and burn where they want to burn, basically. It's quite terrifying, isn't it, that in this day and age, uh, you know, in, the, in the 21st century, we can still be lost, essentially, to such a... A tremendous natural occurrence, which is just—it's just terrifying. And uh, unless you've really experienced it yourself, you don't really understand it. That's the thing. I think the majority of Australians who live in the city just don't understand the hazards of of these fires. And I'd also argue that uh, people who live in small towns, who until recently would have thought, oh, "I'm fine. I'm in a small town," but as we saw in New South Wales, uh, whole towns are, and townships are just gone. It's terrible. Yeah, so um, I've spoken to a few people who've had remarkable survival stories, um, basically running into the house at the last minute and watching it, everything else burn around it. Mm-hmm. And then when the house starts burning, going outside to burnt paddock and other people doing similar things in vehicles. But yeah, it's, um, 
makes you feel small against the power of nature, really. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So what's something that stood out uh, for you, something that's imprinted in your mind uh, that you've seen in the last few weeks in relation to the fires, something that you remember for life? Um, well, I had the, I guess, well, fortune or misfortune of heading out on the um, the morning after the big fire on the 4th of um, of January and with the CFS and we went out and all this, the dead animals lining the side of the road and the burnt animals still standing in the paddocks and um, hearing the gunshots and just the smells and um, we also came across the two people that had died. Yes. Um, so that was pretty confronting. Um and then headed out to the Western District Football Club and to see the club all burnt down um, to the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then running, uh, coming back, running into a mate whose house had burnt down and he was just on his way to shoot uh, his sheep. So, yeah, that was a pretty full-on morning. That's, uh, it's, it's terribly sad. No one should have to go through that, that kind of thing. But it's, it's also so important because... At least, at least people know about it and can remember it, and hopefully we can, as a, as a an Australian community, can look back on this and say, well, we don't want this to happen again. Hmm. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think it is going to happen, given the uh, what's happening with the climate, and um, yeah, and. Oh, I, but, I completely yeah, agree with you. I think that <laughs> I it's it's still on... going on back. It's, so I, I moved here from New South Wales, and yes. it's still going on as we speak, even tonight. It is in Canberra, um, around, around I, Canberra right now. It's it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, so southern so I've got friends in the southern suburbs of Canberra, and I've got friends in uh, Narooma and Bermagui, and they're all completely on edge tonight because the forecast is that it's going to spread tomorrow. So in over there, it's uh, pretty similar, remarkably similar. Actually, it's just burnt most of the. Um, most of the area, it's all just burnt. Yeah. It's just astonishing how much of Australia has actually gone now because of these fires. And it, it's unprecedented, but at the same time, it's not unpredictable. It's, uh, climate change is very much a real, real problem. And uh, one of the things that people keep saying to me throughout this tragedy is that um, we shouldn't make it political. But I'm of the view of that we need to make it political because if you don't, people will forget about it. And people will right. Well, it's a, it it should be people listening, or what do, you know, the science is there. It's obvious, and when you ignore the science, that it becomes critical. So, yeah, all the other stuff about uh, hazard reduction and um, indigenous burning and all that other stuff is peripheral uh, to what's actually happening. Of um, course, of course, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I might be a bit of a pes- I might be a bit of a pessimist. Not at all. Not but, at all. Uh, so what's the what's the most negative thing, uh, the most negative aspect of this tragedy that you've come across so far? Um, and I don't mean encountered, I mean in general. So uh, right, I guess people um, being ignorant and 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 blaming others, and I mean we're fortunate in Kangaroo Island because we're a very tight community, so everyone's mm-hmm. really pulling together and helping each other. But some of the stuff you see on Facebook and I guess there was, you know, there was talk of looting and arson yes. and all that kind of crazy stuff, which, you know, people just grasp at straws or focus on the negative at times. So I guess that would be it. But 
you know, we, we haven't really had any of that here. So even though people were were um, talking about it on social media, it never happened. So. Of course, look, and absolutely. I, I must admit, I did read about it on social media, but uh, it's one of those things on Kangaroo Island. If something happens, everyone knows about it straight away and they know who does something and so things don't happen. Now, what's the most positive yeah. thing that you've come across so far in relation to the fires? The most positive thing? Yes, the most positive thing. The most yes. positive like community um, effort or something like that. I think it's a chance to rebuild and restart and mm-hmm. um, do things better. I know a lot of people saying that maybe we don't want the plantations anymore, that they could go back to farm farming land that it was. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I guess that would be it. Um, there's not much positive out of a disaster, but um, and then just the fact of everyone pulling together. And- At this point of the interview, unfortunately, we had a little bit of technical difficulty, but we soon got Stan back on the air. I, I must admit, I do agree with you with the community coming together. It's something I noticed while I was on the island was that the whole community just became so positive and uh Everyone was looking out for everybody else, and being being you know a Northern Islander as such, um, I've never I've I've never noticed communities being so close like that, and it was a truly heartwarming experience. Yeah, no, it has been great, and um, every you know, it's, uh, like I said, everyone was doing their little bit, what they can, mm-hmm. whether that be um, going out to feed the wildlife or helping sort through donations or the people that are actually fighting the fires. Of course. The uh, CFS, you know, brigade members and the volunteer firefighters. And, um, yeah, no, it, that, that's, that's been very positive. No, look, absolutely. Um, Stan Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That was Stan Gorton from the Islander newspaper on Kangaroo Island, an eyewitness reporter for a number of the incidents that have taken place in this natural disaster period on Kangaroo Island. One of the things that my trip to Kangaroo Island really showed me was that we really do live in a fragile situation on a fragile planet, which is being severely affected by climate change. The firestorms that have been raging all over Australia are just absolutely shocking and we have to do something about it and the people have to do something about it otherwise it's going to happen every year. It's going to keep happening and from a political science point of view once that's once it's a continuing regular occurrence the economy disappears, the Uh, economic issues of towns can't handle themselves, insurance goes up, as well as the social and and medical situations. I mean, for instance, things like uh, the medical costs of asthma and respiratory illnesses over the next 25 years, as well as the PTSD that's caused uh, by people viewing and seeing and family members being hurt, all that kind of thing, of firefighters and ambulance workers, emergency services workers, professional people, as well as civilians who just happen to be there. It's all a terrible cost. And not to forget the massive animal cost to the whole natural disaster. So hopefully Australia can become a world leader in climate change action, and then we can do something about it. Well, that's all the time we have for the Political Thinker podcast for this week. Please stay tuned. There will be more episodes to come. 
And uh, don't forget to contact us on Facebook and follow us on Facebook as well. And of course, you can find this podcast if you're listening to it already on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Just look up Political Thinker. Until then, keep thinking politically. as a welcome back to all my loyal fans and listeners, here's something I put together the other day.